Welcome to NatSec Tech, a podcast from the Special Competitive Studies Project. I'm Jean Meserve. SCSP has a mission to make sure the U.S. is positioned and organized to win the global technology competition, which will determine the nation's economic and geopolitical future. And the goal of this podcast series is to help you understand a little bit about the technology and more about the issues and why they're so important, not just to the nation, but to you. A lot of people have concerns about technology, the part it's playing in our lives. They worry about maintaining privacy, preserving civil liberties. They worry about the bias that may be built into technology and how it may impact even something like getting a loan. Today, we're going to talk about how government, industry, academia, and civil society might work together to address or ease those concerns while still fostering the kind of innovation needed to maintain the nation's technology edge. Joining me to discuss Dr. Lynn Parker, Associate Vice Chancellor at the University of Tennessee and Director of the AI Tennessee Initiative. Previously, she led national artificial intelligence policy efforts at the White House Office of Science and Technology. Also with us, Dr. David Danks, a professor of data science and philosophy at the University of California, San Diego. He serves on numerous scientific advisory boards, including as a panel advisor to the Special Competitive Studies Project. Great to have you both with us. We're talking today about artificial intelligence and its various applications. First, let me ask you, David, why don't I start with you? Is there a widely accepted definition of what AI is? Uh, well, first, thanks so much for having me. Uh, I think in answer to your question, there's not an agreed upon definition, but I do think that there's an agreed upon understanding. So in general, we use the term AI or artificial intelligence to refer to computational systems, computers, phones that are in many people's pockets probably right now that they're listening to this podcast on, that are able to take on some of the thinking, some of the doing that traditionally we've assumed is the province of humans. So when a decision is made about who should receive a loan or which resumes I should look at when I'm trying to hire somebody, that's using a system that would be considered AI. In contrast, say, a system that uh, helps your car steer just a little bit quicker because of advanced hydraulics probably isn't AI because that's not something that traditionally humans did. Now, the problem is that um, we don't actually have a clear definition of the things that we humans are really special at or the things that we have to be the ones to do. But I think it's kind of a we know it when we see it uh, in many cases. So, Lynn, um, David just laid out some sort of benign uses of technology. I've talked about the worries people have. Is there reason for people to be concerned about this technology and how it's applied? Well, it's true that there are so many beneficial uses of AI, but there are some ways that AI can be used that can harm people. So an example of this is, um, let's say you're applying for a job and you put your resume in, but it's a very popular job. And so many others have put in their resumes as well. And so it has become difficult for some employers to be able to weed through all of those resumes. So there are some AI tools now that can help employers to screen resumes. And the goal is to try to find those candidates that would be good for the job based on the skills and so forth. The danger is that um, the uh, screening process that that AI system may be based on embedded biases. It may be that 
it's going to pick out candidates who look very similar to the existing workforce at that um, organization. And so what happens then is that you get more of what you already have, when in fact there could be other types of candidates that would be better suited or, or ex especially well suited. And so that's one example of um, a, a way that the AI could the AI system can actually prevent people from having access to certain job opportunities because they get weeded out automatically for reasons that are not really based on the ability to do the job. So there are other examples like of this as well. But yes, there are these kinds of use cases that can be very problematic. And in some places, it's used for surveillance, like in China. Exactly. Um, so it, it's not the AI itself that's bad, but it, it is the use cases. And so that's why there has been some discussion about um, understanding what are these use cases and what are the implications of certain use cases. And surveillance is, is a clear one that most of us agree we do not want to have continual public surveillance um, by AI systems uh, in most cases. So, David, right now, is there any kind of governance of these systems in the U.S.? So this might surprise some of your listeners, but I think the answer is yes, there is. Now, the reason it might surprise some of the listeners is because they might be assuming that when you say the word governance, what you mean is regulation. It's the federal government coming in and controlling what is done with these AI systems. And there actually is some regulation in particular domains and sectors. So AI uh, is somewhat regulated, for example, in the healthcare space, especially around medical devices. But more importantly, use, you use the word governance, which is really about all of the mechanisms in addition to regulation that we can use to help bend technology in the directions that we want it to be bent. And what would those things be? Yeah, so there we've got a number of uh, industry standards, industry groups uh, that are working to identify, for example, what kinds of content moderation, which is a very popular topic in the news these days, but there actually are ongoing efforts to have better uh, and more defended, more defensible standards when it comes to content moderation. Or if we think about the use of AI systems in self-driving cars, or even the not fully self-driving cars that many of us already have, the ones that can do lane keeping, distance, all these sorts of things, there are agreed upon uh, industry norms about the kinds of technology that we should use there, how it ought to perform. And so we're able to, I think, shape technology in better uh, direction even without having the kind of hard control over technology that uh, regulation might provide. But Lynn, do you think we should be trusting to the titans of industry to police this for us? Well, certainly there's a lot of um, problems with uh, tech companies and some of their policies. And certainly there's a lack of trust right now um, at, as it relates to the general public and their uh, belief that tech companies can in fact police themselves. So I do think, however, that industry does have an important role here. Um, industry does understand the technology and they can understand uh, some of the best practices that are implementable. And so they do have a role. I don't think the industry should be uh, removed from the governance of, of technology and AI. But there is also an important role for, for governments. And so this is something that has to be done, I think, in, in conjunction with each other. I think certainly um, coming up with uh, approaches that both sides agree will solve the or address the important challenges and, and concerns uh, is the ideal situation. 
And, and so there is, uh, I think it's all hands on deck when it comes to coming up with the governance that we need. David, would you agree there is a, a role for government in this? Certainly. Uh, There are certain things that industry is never going to be willing to do on its own, and that's part of the role of governments is to help change the incentives so that industry will want to do it. I would say that the public has a role to play in this. Uh, Most of these tech companies are highly responsive to market forces. And if people suddenly refuse to join, for example, certain social media platforms or utilization of certain technologies uh, were to plummet, I think that you would see companies rather quickly responding and changing. I think that civil society, uh, the role of all of the other parts of our society that hold us together, Take PTAs, for example. Uh, AI systems are spreading rapidly in schools. And how many PTAs, uh, our local PTAs, are actually being active in terms of understanding the risks and the benefits of these technologies? So I think that, as Lynn said, it's all hands on deck. And uh, we need to be using every mechanism we can to help shape these technologies. Wait, before you go any further, explain to me how AI is being used in schools. Well, it's being used in a lot of different ways. Uh, So, for example, there are in many schools right now, AI systems being used to detect whether somebody is actually paying attention in class or paying attention for an exam. Uh, This is a part of a product of all the changes that happened in schooling around COVID. Are they doing that through facial recognition? Is that how they track that? Yeah, it's really terrifying because they are not nearly as accurate as they need to be for the uses that they're being put to here. Uh, But there are any number of cases of people who have been told that they have failed an exam because they were supposedly cheating because the system detected them as very regularly looking off screen in ways that uh, were indicative of them consulting another resource like another computer. But they're also being used to design lesson plans or to do adaptive testing so that you can more quickly test more people. Uh, In fact, the venerable SAT that many of us took once upon a time now uses on the back end certain AI elements to try to get more accurate uh, results, but of course at the risk of exactly the kinds of biases that Lynn mentioned earlier. Um, Lynn, going back to the government role for just a moment, the European Union has passed a data privacy law. As I understand it, they're working on facial recognition and other biometrics right now. Why are they ahead of the United States? Well, the EU historically has had more of a precautionary approach to regulation, which means that they have been looking at ways to ensure that the risk to individuals is very low. Now, it's not to say that the United States wants there to be risky approaches to technology. But I think our philosophy more generally has been, let's try it, let's see, let's uh, let's look at the good uses, the benefits that can be obtained from technology. And then if there are problems that arise, we'll address them when they arise. It's it's kind of the differences between uh, having sort of more of a, an innovation mindset of, hey, here's a solution. Let's try it. Let's solve cool problems. And one of saying, OK, let's put the brakes on here until we can make sure that the technology is going to operate as intended and there aren't going to be unintended consequences or particular harms. That's an an historical difference of opinion, uh, difference of approach, I would say, in the EU approach versus the U.S. approach. It's not unique to AI, um, but it is certainly uh, has been reflected in the work. And, And there's also the EU AI Act um, that, uh, the EU is, is now negotiating. 
So is there a risk, Lynn, of there being different standards and rules and norms in different places? And what's that going to mean? There is a risk of this uh, happening. Industry, of course, would like to have um, a common approach uh, around the world, probably one that is innovative, uh, innovation forward. Um, The problem if you're an industry is if you have to create new approaches or go through different kinds of steps for every market that you have, it, it doesn't scale very well. And so this is the danger for in, for industry is that they have so many different regulatory regimes that they have to keep up with and, and so forth. So that's, that's the danger from an industry perspective. I think from a, a user perspective or a customer perspective or like a citizen perspective, um, having some predictability and, and some agreement on what it is that we want out of our technology, uh, what we're willing to um, say give up, maybe as it relates to privacy, for instance, um, in order to have the kinds of services that we want to have or the benefits that we want to have. These are all trade-offs. And so I think the extent to which we can have uh, an agreement on the uh, appropriate approaches to governing um, AI systems so that we can not only ensure that we're not being harmed by AI, but that we can also gain the benefits of AI. David, I want to talk for a few minutes about what government government's role might look like in your dreams. So let's start with data privacy. If you were going to draft the rules for the government to implement, wh- how would you deal with data privacy? Uh, what we collect, how long we keep it, where we store it? Well, I would actually start by not trying to think about data privacy. Um, I would start by thinking about data use. I think we too often focus on the question of whether some piece of information about me sits in a server somewhere uh, that somebody might someday do something with. But I think when we think about what really matters to us with regards to privacy, it's not whether some ones and zeros are sitting on a server somewhere, it's what's done with those data. So I'm perfectly happy for my local grocery store to know what things I bought in the past so they can give me coupons. I don't want my local grocery store using what I bought in the past to try and figure out whether, I don't know, I'm having issues in my marriage or something like that. That would be an entirely inappropriate use. And it's not about the data. It's about what's done with it. Now, the challenge, of course, from a regulatory perspective, from a government perspective, is how do we regulate the use of technology, the use of data, which is uh, not an easy task. But in my dream, that's really what it would be, is that when I go to the grocery store, I say, sure, you can track my purchase history for the purposes of giving me coupons. And that's it. And if they use it for any other purpose, then that's a violation. Or I can go to, say, a large search engine company, take your pick of which you prefer, and say, it's perfectly fine for you to know my search history so that you can give me the right kinds of information that I'm probably looking for, but you can't use it to sell me better ads uh, and or sell, sell ads about me. Um, and so I think that that's really the key is how do we move from this focus just on the, the bits of information to what is done with the bits of those information? I want to take a little bit of a detour here because I'm uh, concerned by what I read about China and what it's doing with the data um, of Americans, that it is hacking into systems and hoovering up all this information and using it to improve their own AI systems. Um, Is there anything that can be done that would lock it down apart from collecting less of it? 
so in general, I would say no. Uh, once the data are collected and sitting in a server, they become vulnerable. And so I think one of the real keys that we're seeing in a lot of companies is a move towards either what is sometimes called data minimalism, the idea that as a company, I don't want to collect very much data or I want to collect only what is critical. Now, maybe it's to protect against uh, cyber theft. Maybe it's because if I don't have the data, I can't be served with a subpoena. And so it might just be easier for me as a company. But I think data minimalism is a key. I think there's also, um, to use a technical term, the, the ideas around what are called differential privacy which is uh, very widespread now in things like location apps. So mapping maps, you know, Google Maps, Apple Maps, all of these are using differential privacy, which essentially makes it so that you can find the right route home. You can know how bad the traffic is, but you're never able to know where any particular individual is. So we can know a lot of things about the group, about what's happening in, the, in my neighborhood, but I don't know what's happening with any particular neighbor. So I think these joint sort of ideas of data minimalism and differential privacy are really key, but those are not things that right now are required uh, by any sort of regulation. They're being pushed by consumer demand in many cases. And so I think we need to find ways to increase the pressure to use those kinds of techniques to just reduce the likelihood of the inevitable theft. So, Lynn, there is so much technology. How do we possibly govern it all? I think you have to approach it on a use case approach. And that's certainly what what David has been um, pushing uh, forward, I think, in in his responses, is is that we need to think about the use cases of AI. It's not about the technology itself. And so... um, if you take a sector specific approach, let's think about AI in the context of healthcare. Well, there the kinds of concerns that you might have in healthcare may be very different if you're thinking about AI in the context of transportation, for instance, or um, AI in the context of advanced manufacturing. And so each sector, uh, I think, has its own uses. And if we consider those with some common principles in each use case, then I think we can get at regulation that makes sense, that doesn't have as many unintended consequences. Even within a sector, there would be many iterations of technology. Even that seems like a huge task to me. It is a huge task. And so if you think about the United States and and a pathway forward, we have a lot of regulatory agencies. Those regulatory agencies do have regulatory authorities over sectors. And so I think an appropriate approach here for the United States is for those regulatory bodies to consider the use cases that are under their authority, and that is a sector, and then dig into what their use cases are and um, effectively prioritize these and prioritize them in terms of perhaps what the risk is. Um, A framework is being developed for analyzing uh, risk, um, uh, which is the NIST is developing the AI risk management framework, which can give a standardized approach to considering risk across a lot of different use cases. So if you have a standardized approach like that, that you can use, then you can consider the use cases um, more um, in a prioritized manner. And it's more scalable, I think. But do you always know in advance what's going to do harm? What's going to be the riskiest technology? No, you do not. Um, and this is um, this has been demonstrated. I think if you look at a number of the early use cases of AI, 
um, often the unintended consequences of that those AI systems um, were not imagined in advance by the developers. And this is not, I don't think, an easy um, uh, challenge to um, address. I don't think we can ever predict what we don't know. And so what we're going to have to do is be responsive and continually monitor the systems for any sorts of potential harms so that we can very, very quickly act on these unintended consequences that come up. But at the same time, I don't think we want to sit around and say, um, you know, we, we, we don't want to use this technology at all because we may not have thought of something. I think we have to have um, you know, perhaps one approach would be through uh, sandboxing, what's called a regulatory sandbox, which is effectively a safe environment where you can test out particular um, technologies, AI technologies, as well as the appropriate governance and test it out for a while and see if it works. And then you can get the benefit of using the technology while at the same time being nimble and responsive to any sort of unintended consequences that may have uh, may result from that. David, your thoughts on this sector-specific approach? Uh, so I strongly agree with Lynn that it's going to need to be sector-specific and that there are a lot of agencies that have really deep knowledge about their sectors and about the things that uh, work and the things that go wrong. Um, I would double down even more, uh, perhaps, than Lynn about the importance, though, of thinking about these kinds of approvals with AI in a very dynamic and iterative manner. I think that it isn't just that we don't know how these systems are gonna perform, it's that these systems are actually changing the world around them. They're changing the very things that they are supposed to be measuring and, and helping us to do. And so we need to make sure that we don't just deploy and forget. We need to deploy and then continue to monitor and continue to update. So the, the contrast here I would say is if you develop a new system for braking in a car, for stopping, uh, you can test it, show that it works, and then deploy it in a bunch of different cars and it doesn't change the roads, it doesn't change the weather. But if you develop an AI system for a self-driving car, even a self-driving assistance to a car, and then you put it out on the roads, you're changing the very world, namely the world of drivers, that the system was built for. The world in which we have a bunch of self-driving cars, people don't drive the same way as they do uh, when there are no self-driving cars on the road. And I saw this happen in the small scale when I was living in Pittsburgh for many years, where these cars were tested on the neighborhood roads that I walked and drove on every single day, and people changed their behavior around them. And so that was a challenge. An AI system might work great as a self-driving car when it's the only one on the road. And when there's 5% of the cars being self-driving vehicles, suddenly they don't work anymore. So we just have to never think that we've settled the question of whether some AI technology is doing the right thing in the right context. We need to be doing continual monitoring and continual approvals. Does government have the capability to do that? And does government have the manpower? And do they have the knowledge around these issues to do the job. Lynn, you've been in government. Well, I, I think it's improving, but it's certainly the case that um, we need more experts, AI experts in the workforce within the federal government. Um, each agency has a handful of experts that 
I think know what needs to be done. I think they've identified what some of the open um, areas are, the areas that they need to address. I, I, I've talked frequently about the fact that we need to come up with ways of getting more expertise within the federal government so that they can uh, not only identify what needs to be done, but actually uh, actually do it. And there's certainly some, some ways of even uh, loaning um, people to the federal government for a period of time. In fact, that's what I did. I, I've served six years in the federal government, but it was all on loan from my home university. And so I think there are ways of getting more uh, more um, experts in the federal government who can help with this. But right now it's very slow. Um, David, what's the role of academia? Well, so I think the role of academia is to uh, help us understand the risks, the possibilities, and the processes that we can use to manage those risks and opportunities. The other big role, of course, for academia is training the next generation of AI researchers, developers, users, and the general public. And here, I think what's really critical is that we now I would argue, understand that responsible, trustworthy, equitable AI only happens when you have people from diverse perspectives and backgrounds in the room working collaboratively. And so one of the things that I think is a really pressing challenge for us in academia is to teach the next generation how to engage in those kinds of productive collaborations so that they walk into the workforce ready and assuming that of course they're gonna be taking diverse perspectives into account when they develop their technology. Of course, they're going to think about the impacts of their technology and they have the, the mental and uh, computational tools to do it better. One reads that we're on the brink of big changes uh, when it comes to AI. And I'm wondering, um, Lynn, why don't you take this first? Um, if we haven't tackled the governance issue, how dangerous is the world gonna be? I personally don't lose sleep over this. Um, I, I think that um, there are uh, certainly potential harms, but I also think there's a, a, a growing and, and strong awareness of what those potential harms are, or, or the fact that there are certain use cases that we need to pay particular attention to. So I think that there is a lot of momentum uh, in the country to figuring out the appropriate way to govern these systems. I don't feel like um, we're going to suddenly wake up tomorrow and AI systems are going to have caused radical uh, damage of, of some sort. So I do think if you compare the state of uh, play right now compared to, say, four years ago, uh, we have made a lot of progress uh, collectively across the, the community of, of AI researchers and users and developers and so forth in understanding what the possibilities are with AI and the potential harms and ways to address those. I think it's often easy for us to get impatient and, and think we need to have this solved right now. That would be the ideal world, is, but that we would have it solved you know, today. But at the same time, I think the trajectory is positive. I think we are figuring out how to do this. Um, often, you know, I say it's slower than we would like, and it is slower than we would like, but I think the trajectory is in a good direction. So I don't think that there's AI that there are AI systems that are out um, out there today that are going to, you know, cause fear um, on a massive scale, because I think there's a lot of civil society participation, a lot of public participation, academic participation, industry, and government as well to identify what those uh, harms are and to act on them 
quickly, even in spite of not having formal governance. David, if we get this wrong, the governance question, will it really stifle innovation? I think that poor governance or poorly designed governance absolutely can reduce opportunities for innovation. I think we see this in other countries and we've seen it with earlier technologies where you get protectionism either by the folks who were the early adopters of a technology or protectionism about a country that does lead to reduced innovation. At the same time, I think one of the the both amazing and terrifying things about AI is just how many uses it can be put to. And so unless we try to do very broad governance, I think there's always going to be opportunities to find novel uses, novel opportunities for AI systems out there. So it might stifle innovation in a sector. It might stifle innovation in a region for a period of time. But I don't think that it's going to stifle the growth and uh, ubiquity of AI systems in our lives. Lynn, your perspective on the innovation question? I think the right amount of governance can be pro-innovation in the sense that it's reducing the uncertainty and the lack of clarity around what the expectations are for industry. There's a lot of discussions around different approaches. And right now, because there's no consensus on what that overall approach should be, industry is kind of working in the dark. And so that can in itself hinder innovation. No governance, um, I think, is bad. Too much governance, I think, is also bad. But the right amount can be quite effective for advancing innovation and making sure that harms are are mitigated and and, and bypassed. David, would uh, governance of some kind put the U.S. at a disadvantage vis-a-vis China? I don't think that it would, in part because of the points that Lynn was making about the value of certain kinds of governance. I think also that it puts us in a very good position in terms of global leadership. If we don't govern at all, or if we fail to have measures of governance that focus on the high consequence cases, the things that really do impact people's lives, then we're not going to be able to make the case that we're doing things in a better way. So even if in the short run, governance requires people to stop and think about whether they really do want to build the technology or really do want to build it in that way, I think in the long run, it is critical for us being able to make the case to the rest of the world in our global leadership role that technology can be used for the benefit of all. AI does not have to be used for control. It does not have to be used solely for the um, enrichment of a privileged few, but rather can make a positive difference in the lives of all of the citizens of a country. Lynn, do you agree that if we do nothing, we create a vacuum which the Chinese can occupy? Yes, I do think so. And um, I love David's points that we do need to be uh, proactive in demonstrating that our values mean something. We we want to have uh, values that uphold the rights and civil liberties and privacy of the, the people who live in our country. And so um, we need to reflect that in the way that we use technology and the way we govern technology. And so I think we um, have an extremely important role to show the world how we can both innovate and be responsible, that those two 
properties are not mutually exclusive. Thank you so much to Dr. Lynn Parker, Associate Vice Chancellor at the University of Tennessee and Director of the AI Tennessee Initiative, and also Dr. David Danks, Professor of Data Science and Philosophy at the University of California, San Diego, and a panel advisor to the Special Competitive Studies Project. I'm Jean Meserve. Thanks to all of you for joining us. We'll be back in two weeks. Tune in again. <music>